Good evening, good afternoon, good morning. I don't know when you're listening to this, but I'm recording it in the evening. And uh, so welcome to Tales from a Cult Insider, the podcast that just doesn't stop, even though I said it was over. <laughs> I have more to say. Uh, this is epilogue number three. Uh, the title is, Okay, So Now I Know, uh, because, well, see, you can't see me, but I am fidgeting. I am somewhat agitated. I've had several days to process, uh, and I still have a lot boiling. Um, okay, so now I know is in reference to the fact that I have received a large amount of material, uh, but I want to do some background and also tell you why this may get a little warm, so to speak. This has been a difficult week, but also a productive week. Um, I am closing in on leaving my day job. Um, the reason I'm leaving the day job is because my wife is now a full-time lawyer, and we really, we have made a commitment as a family to have one parent at home uh, full time. And the, we have enough kids who are at different stages of life that we really do need to have that attention on the kids, uh, especially as the school year begins. And so there's a lot on my mind. Uh, my day job is on my mind. It's heavy duty right now, I'm trying to get a lot of stuff done. But I don't know if I mentioned in, in any previous episodes, but I injured my shoulder pretty bad uh, at the turn of the year before the whole COVID thing started, right? And um, it, it was actually, it turns out it was the, the, the acuting or the, the, the making more severe of an old injury. Uh, I believe I tore both my, both labrum um, on each, well, the labrum on each side, of, on each shoulder uh, 15 years ago as a bellman at the Hotel Captain Cook in Anchorage, Alaska. A really busy uh, hotel. We stayed very busy. We had to move several uh, hundred suitcases uh, at the beginning and middle and end of every shift usually. So it was busy and I believe that I did damage to my shoulders then. But when I fell down uh, New Year's Eve, um, I appeared to have ripped my labrum all the way across and had to have surgery where they cut the biceps tendon and dug it into a bone. I think I might have mentioned this once. Anyway, Monday, I went to a um, an indie author event up in uh, Tremont in Utah. It's a lovely library, uh, lovely people up there. Boy, just wonderful people up there. The library, Debbie, is just librarian. She, she's, she's such a, la- a great lady. Um, it was a little slow, but that's okay. It was nice to take it easy. But unfortunately, while unloading boxes of books onto my wheeled cart, I, I bent over and I moved a box with my left arm, which is the one I had the surgery on, and uh, did something. I don't know what, uh, it turns out it's like a sprain slash strain, uh, in my muscle tendon area. Um, I haven't re-injured. It is definitely a setback. I haven't redone the injury or anything. Didn't make it do anything serious. It looks like based on muscle tests, but heckin' frustrating guys. Um, I was, I was at almost full movement, definitely not at full strength, but I was at almost full movement again in my shoulder. The the physical therapist has been, she, she's been uh, a miracle, a marvel. Uh, she's wonderful. Uh, and so I was very disappointed and very worried uh, from Monday early evening through to Wednesday morning that I'd done something really bad because it hurt like the Dickens. He gave me some steroid pills, um, which I've taken mostly, and uh, some some prescription ibuprofen, and it should be okay in a few more weeks. It's just a a month or two setback in my recovery, but it was very stressful, was very worried I'd done a really bad thing, and and also, honestly, I don't need the, the, we don't need the financial stuff. So I'm leaving the job. Um, this is on my mind. Um, I'm, um, doing, you know, getting my kids ready for school, uh, trying to deal with, you know, overall family things. And it's just been a very stressful week. So that's going to boil up for sure. As I share some of the things that I'm going to share with you today. Um, as always, let me just lead off with, if you have questions, go to Jared at jaredgarrett.com. Um, also, also, also this time I'm going to share artwork 
um, in the uh, description of this episode. I'm gonna um, I'm gonna like share the link to an album either on my website jaredgarrett.com or on my author Facebook page. Maybe I'm not sure. I'm just gonna I've taken a bunch of photographs of the some of the work the, the materials I got and uh, I want to share it with y'all. So feel free uh, to click on the link if you see it there wherever it takes you to. I'm not sure how that will work yet. Um, I'll figure it out tonight. <laughs> it's late. Oh boy, here we go. It's actually past midnight uh, for me. So um, <clears throat> why do I have a bunch of materials all of a sudden? Well, that's a good question I asked myself. It's because um, there's an article that's going to come out. It's a feature on me, actually, in, a, in a, on an outlet that I'll tell you about sometime uh, soon. As soon as it comes out, I don't want to be ridiculous because it's taken a while. Um, the, the writer of the article has done a ton of research. He reached out to the director of a documentary about the cult. Uh, and he, um, watched the the documentary as it turns out a documentary, which I hadn't actually had a chance to see yet. Um, which is a a shame, honestly. Um, but now I have, (laughs) boy, lots to say. But I'm just going to stick to the materials because uh, I don't want to be an advertisement necessarily, although it's that's certainly going to... I mean, if you're interested in this stuff, you're going to find the documentary very interesting. The documentary is called Sympathy for the Devil. Now, that might sound familiar to those who are um, Rolling Stones fans um, because I believe they have an album and I even think they did a movie or documentary for themselves. But this one is Sympathy for the Devil, uh, maybe a question mark, but uh, then the subtitle is The True Story of the Process Church of the Final Judgment. Spelled correctly, by the way, the judgment without the E in the middle. Um, so so this journalist reached out to the director. The director reached out to me saying, hey, there's somebody t- asking me about you. Um, and that was kind of cool. And the director knew to reach out to me because when I heard about the documentary through the grapevine of old process members uh, there on Facebook and some secret groups, um, I reached out to him and said, hey, what are you doing? Um, I just want to make sure that uh, I know what's happening, seeing if I can help or anything. I just I wanted to make sure or just verify that he was going to treat these people who I sort of know and definitely respect. Uh, and I see them as, you know, part of my stewardship, that he was going to treat them well. His intentions were good. Um, they certainly play up in the promotional materials, especially the ad, uh, the trailer uh, and, and the visual materials, the cult, the darker cult side uh, and some of the weirder original doctrine. Uh, stuff I didn't even know about. I grew up in this thing, but the one I grew up in, or the the, the post schism version that I grew up in, was highly vanilla. Uh, and so it's it's been very interesting to first ten years ago or so ago learn it schismed off of, or broke off of Scientology, which I've talked about, um, and then to further continue finding out about what the heck these people used to do and believe. It's off the wall, man. And, and, and they hide it, you know, because it's best friends now, right? And they hide it. And I'm not here to do an expose, but they hide it. And, and they don't need to. Although, of course, you can see why they would after I read some of this to you. There's going to be me reading quite a few things to you. Um, but in any case, um, just remember to review the, the, the podcast. Remember to review this episode. Give it a rating on iTunes. Anything to, 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 to pump it up a little bit. I'll tell you what. Every listen is about a penny to me. Uh, it adds up a little bit. Um, I paid a bill or two off this one, just really only one or two. And there's always a link to, to, to support the podcast. So if you would like, like to do so, please do. Um, okay. So, um, let me get to something. So 
here I have uh, a little pamphlet called the process or process sessions. Uh, and, and this is really, um, it's fairly, it's, it's fairly brief. I'm not, it's still too long for me to just sit here reading to you. Although I have a very lovely reading voice. I'm going to read some of it to you though. Okay. Um, okay. So it's called the process or process sessions. It's got their, um, their original symbol, uh, logo thing on it. Now, if you look at the logo, artwork for this podcast, you've got two symbols, uh, one at the top right, which is kind of an iron cross, and it's the process Church of the Final Judgment. That's what this thing evolved into. And then under that, next to the name Tales from a Cult Insider is one in a round. It looks like a medallion. That's what it was. It was a medallion. Uh, and that is, it looks like one F right side up and one F uh, upside down connected to each other with the middle kind of crossbar which I think stands for Foundation Faith, but it also stands for some other things. Um, and it's, I think it's a, that's a Hebrew star, if, I, if, I, if I'm knowing my stuff, or Star of David, rather. So uh, this original logo is very similar to the Iron Cross at the top one, except it's just four lines in that kind of um, juxtaposed imagery. So, or geographical pattern. So here's what this pamphlet says. Your day-to-day problems, large and small, your fears, failures, blocks, barriers, troubles, anxieties, feelings of inadequacy, guilt, frustration, tension, apprehensions, doubts, obsessions, and disappointments, all these are the outward manifestations of mental conflicts, not those you know about, the conscious feelings of divided inclination, which are themselves no more than outward manifestations, but unconscious, deeply buried conflicts, ones that you cannot see. For if you could, they would no longer trouble you with their unpleasant effects. That was all one sentence, by the way. (laughs) And these conflicts, lurking as they do beneath the level of consciousness, uh, are both active and powerful, controlling you, motivating you, driving you, ruling your life, and dictating your thoughts, your emotions, and your actions. That's the first paragraph. Um, Bull crap. Bull crap. Now, in, in a way it's true, but in a way it's just utter crap, right? Um, it, this is like that, that, that movie, which is very touching and very moving called Inside Out, uh, which makes a person a victim of their emotions. No, the emotions are real. Um, and yes, we want to believe that we're rational beings, but truly what's actually happening is we are altruistic beings who say, oh, that's, a, that's an emotion that's leading me to negative action. I want I have a deeper, stronger emotion where I want to do positive action. My desire and motivation to do the positive outweighs the power of that emotion that's leading me to negative action. And so I'm going to fight back and I'm going to do a good thing or not a non-destructive thing. I'm not going to throw a temper tantrum. I'm not going to run away or do whatever else. I'm not going to yell at this person. Okay, so yeah, we want to be rational beings, but we're really emotional beings. I actually have another podcast, by the way. It's called Win the Moment. <clears throat> And it's pretty cool. It's about winning certain moments in life. Life is full of moments, of course. We have opportunities to win them or lose them. Now, I will say that they get at some interesting things here, um, somewhat psychologically, but it's mostly, you know, pseudoscience, right? Pseudo-behavioral science. So back to this after my little outburst there. Denying their existence does not send them away any more than being unconscious of them renders them powerless. And then they make this ridiculous or... or very easy comparison. The reverse. If you ignore a septic finger or try to pretend that it isn't there, it festers and becomes worse, gaining a stronger hold upon you than ever. That's true, guys. And this is my commentary as I whisper. That's true with a septic finger. But our brain is much smarter than a septic finger. Our brain knows often what's good for us and what's bad for us. Now, of course, it can be... um, 
bumped into the wrong cycles and it can be habited into the wrong cycles of behavior. And that's a fact, right? We can become addicted. We can become addicted to certain cycles of communication and behavior. And that's true. But our brain knows what's good for us. If our brain is keeping something away from our consciousness, it's probably a good thing. Now, it's good for us to eventually face that. But you know what? We shouldn't face it all at once, especially either against our will or because somebody's um, telling us that we must face all of our trauma um, and maybe make some trauma up. I don't know. So it's just not an apt or accurate comparison to compare an actual infected septic finger with a brain that is doing its best to protect you. So whatever. Um, the only way you have of curing it is to be aware of it and take the necessary measures to counteract the poison. True. With your unconscious conflicts, it is basically the same. Their power over you lies in the very fact of their being unconscious and therefore unknown. Yes, actually, I agree. Becoming more conscious of what's going on in your head is great. That's what, when the moment's about. You're driven by them blindly seeing neither the nature of the pressures that drive you nor the ultimate object of their relentless driving. So before you can begin to tackle your conflicts and eliminate the unpleasant effects that they have on you, you must first of all recognize and acknowledge their existence. And from that point of recognition, you must set out ruthlessly and systematically to expose them to your conscious awareness and examine both their nature and their source. That's actually fairly good. Until that time, you have only known them. Now you must come to face to face with them, see them clearly and without distortion, see them as a part of you for which you yourself are responsible, and then look beyond to find the source from which they stem, again, another part of you. Now they're kind of on, they're on a good roll. Now, here we go. Process sessions enable you to do precisely this, to discover your unconscious conflicts and what lies behind them so that by knowing the true and fundamental source of your problems and difficulties, you can brush them aside without effort instead of having to suppress them, endure them, or torture yourself in a vicious circle of self-analysis. Then you can cease to be inhibited by petty fears held in check by your own indecisiveness, hampered by worries, pained by super superficial doubts, straining at gnats whilst constant, unconsciously you swallow camels. Instead, with the confidence of profound self-knowledge, you can begin to expand the scope of your activities, concern yourself with wider and more all-encompassing considerations, not as an escape from viewing the extent. Is this sounding familiar? It should be sounding very familiar. It's just common frickin' sense. It's what everybody wants. Tony Robbins preaches it. All the motivational speakers preach it. Heck, I preach this stuff, okay? Everybody wants this kind of control in their lives. Everybody wants the ability to take control of fears and to be more conscious and mindful. Mindful's a big thing. That's what they're talking about. And they weren't before, before their time. People were doing this all over the place. Okay, so here we go. Instead, with the confidence of profound, th 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 you can be scan in the room. Um, not in this, as an escape from it. Um, let's see here. Instead, with the confidence of profound self-knowledge, you can begin to expand the scope of your activities, concern yourself with wider and more all-encompassing considerations, not as an escape from viewing the extent of your own personal dissatisfaction and sense of failure, but because the matter of your personal existence and survival is something that no longer commands almost the whole of your attention and still remains miserably unsatisfactory, but instead runs smoothly and efficiently, requires a minimum of effort and concern, and leaves you able to give yourself to a greater and more and more far-reaching purpose. To know is to be free. To be in ignorance or mystery is to be ensnared or enslaved. Um, again, total, everybody knows this stuff. It's, it, they're, they're, they're playing on fears. This is fairly, fairly basic um, manipulation. You establish some common ground, you establish some common pain, and then you, you start to preach uh, solutions and stuff. Um, let's see here. So, so here we go. Uh, we're going to jump to, here we go. So process sessions are not something that can be entered upon lightly in a half-hearted or casually experimental fashion. Um, I'm going to tell you that, you know what? Um, you can be somewhat half-hearted as you start to make new changes. If you have just the smallest desire to change, that's enough, guys. That is enough. 
uh, you don't need to throw yourself all into something. You can eventually, but it's okay to do as Bob says. And what about Bob? Baby steps. Okay. Uh, they must be lived and experienced to the full. I will agree that life should be experienced to the full. And in order to be able to embark with full advantage upon such a complete and intense experience, you will need a period of preparation. During this time, you will become familiar with the whole concept of mental exploration and self-discovery. Okay. And then they talk about more and more about session, the sessions and what they're like. Um, and then there's this. Uh, here's the promise. Here's the manipulative promise. We've given the pain. We've established common pain. With knowledge, there is life and confidence, vigor and vitality. The intensity of new experiences sounds like drugs. It was for a little while, but then it wasn't. New joys, new agonies, new visions, new interpretations. There, where with the mystery and ignorance, there was fear and furtiveness, guilt and uncertainty, irritation and dissatisfaction, boredom and disability. And as you know, more the confidence grows like the rising sun that drives away the terrors of the night. Shapes that in the darkness of ignorance seem like devouring monsters are shown to be harmless in the light of knowledge. And by knowing yourself, you begin to know other people, see them clearly, understand them. You recognize all caps their fears, all caps their problems, all caps their constant disillusionment and pain. And you realize that whatever image they may present, they are basically uncertain and afraid. So they too cease to be a lurking, watching, waiting threat to your survival or your self-esteem. And the last line after I skip a paragraph is this. Your destiny is there before you, clear and unmistakable. The choice is yours. Uh, fairly common tripe, guys. Honestly. Oh, it's not tripe necessarily. There's good behavioral stuff there. But it really is just your basic pamphlet on here's the pain. Here's the fix. Everybody does this stuff. There's nothing new there except for um, some of the ridiculousness about that, that others, other people. It, 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 it. it it, it makes it divests you of responsibility uh, or to the community of people around you, which is unfortunate. So that's fine. That's fine. Uh, and that's probably a good place to pause for station identification. Uh, yes, this cult was common despite its controversy. And we'll be right back. Okay, I realize I was probably talking really fast in that last uh, chunk. I, I, I just was I'm trying to get to too, through too much here. Um, okay. So one of the things that Neil, uh, the director of the the, uh, the thingamajig, the the documentary, sent me is he sent me a lot of material, and I mean I don't know why he did that, but it's awesome. Um, I've learned so much. <laughs> uh, he, there's a pamphlet that comes. It's branded for with the with the documentary's uh, artwork and stuff. There are lots of photographs in it. In fact, if I go in just on the very front, there, I know. Gabriel, he's um, he's there on the very front. Very fuzzy photograph. Open it. There's Gabriel again. There's Michael Mountain again, who uh, told uh, the writer of a book years ago, I told you about this one. I will not be erased. Yeah, he told him a bunch of crap. Uh, and then the next page, I can see some people I, did, I don't know. Um, but um, if I go into the very middle, the middle image of, the, um, of this pamphlet that he sent along, which it looks like it's probably taken soon after or same near the same time as the one, the one at the front because Gabriel's there, Michael's there, uh, and there's Cyrus, top right, and he's the guy who beat me up. So, okay, uh, when I was nine, and he was a grown man, twice to three times my size. Okay, then anyway, okay, okay. Uh, I want to read to you from Camille Nasser about baptism. It's at the front. I sat in still expectation on the rickety front bench, two German shepherds at my feet. German shepherds were a thing. Snoring on the faded towel floor. Incense smoke poured from the middle of the black draped altar like a chimney in industrial age Birmingham. 
It's a little overwritten. The room radiated black, but three bright symbols defied the black and projected out into the room. The large silver-painted cross that hung in the center behind the altar and the two brilliant red symbols, the flying process symbol sewn onto the middle of the black felt that hung over the altar facing the, the benches. Wait, so it's... It's, it's a brilliant red process symbol sewn onto the middle of black felt. Mercy, that's a little yeah, uh, naughty. Anyway, and the goat of Mendez sewn onto black felt hanging from the dark wall to the right of the cross. So a lot of black and red. Ooh, and you see that in these images. So I'll make sure I give you a link for it. Um, black curtains erased the room's graded windows, eliminating Via Gulia, an ancient Roman street a block from the river Tevere. Wow, is this... This is in Rome? No, this isn't London. Duh, 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 duh. Anyway, everyone wore full-length black robes, the stiff collars touching their jawbones, an unadorned silver cross hanging on their chest from a black cord which made it seem as if it was levitating. Even though several processions were blonde, the darkness of the room made their skin emanate a blackness, a smokiness, a hazy candescence that blended with the dim light offered by the black candles. Two waist-high ornate candlesticks stood between the altar and me, the one on the right that would support a bowl of life-giving water and the one on the left that would contain the purifying fire, a flame like the eternal flame of unknown war heroes burning in cemeteries. I was destined to kneel between the fire and the water. So this is the baptism that they do. Uh, and then he explains it a little bit. Um, so here's the process, though. Two or three, here's the process of doing the baptism. Two or three people moved around the room, arranging last-minute details, whispering to each other to make sure that the baptism performance would be executed with perfected drama. One minute after the subdued voices ended, we stood up. One of the dogs at my feet perked his head, lightly bit me on the leg, then dropped back to the floor. Why did he bite him on the leg? Father Aaron started to him. I don't know who that was. And we dug down deep inside ourselves, pulling out our gravest, most solemn voices for the processional hymn. A slow, almost Gregorian tune you would expect as a, at a king's requiem instead of a messenger's baptism. And I have sung this to you before. It goes like this. <laughs> Babylon, Babylon the Great is falling. <laughs> Processing slowly from the back, the bearers of the water and the fire entered with their bowls in front of their chests. Father Joel and Mother Morgana marched behind them, their deliberate movement matching the dirge we were singing. The four female voices sang in a bewitching tone, By the way, I think Father Joel is Gabriel. We came from the cities of the north, are the lyrics that they sang, but I don't know. It may be, We came from the cities of the north, which I think it is. And the dozen males replied in a somber three-part baritone harmony, Babylon the, or Babylon, Babylon the great is falling. Oh, they were in Rome. I was no longer in Rome, nor near humanity, but high in the Misty Mountains, at last among the most advanced spiritual beings. Misty Mountains? That's Lord of the Rings. Anyway. Transformed by the blackness and the emotion into the world of spirit. Every movement, every word emptied my mind and allowed me to feel the ecstasies of mystical life, bringing me in an eternal instant on the outskirts of Nirvana, merging with the smoke and the song and the slowness to the, phys to the metaphysical realm. Wow. Yikes. Uh, anyway, so um, I think we're going to stop there because this gets a little messed up. Uh, oh, at the very end. Sudden silence, charged atmosphere. So they sang the Babylon, the greatest fallen several times. Vibrating walls and pulsating energies, photons and neutrinos dancing around our heads. Mother Morgana put her hands together over her head, slowly brought them down to her knees, then spread them in the sign of the cross in front of her chest, welcoming in the name of Christ and the gods 
all processions, as well as the spirits and beings who crammed the room, giving us little space in which to move. Okay, so that's, how, that's one of those rituals that they had, right? The baptism ritual. Now, my baptism, I've already shared with you. I was knelt with my back to a pool. Uh, I was shoved into the pool, my, my head and top of my torso soaking wet and pulled out. And I had no idea what was going on. So that's fun. So there you go. That's that's one of the rituals that apparently they did with incense and fire and water. I mean, I I shouldn't be mocking, but it, why hide it? It's funny. It's 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 fun. It's it's colorful. Everybody had a, has a colorful past, right? More or less. It's nothing to hide. Uh, although some of the imagery is a little uh, much. Um, I want to read to you their hierarchy. This is stuff I didn't know. This was not preached to me when I was growing up. You know, by the time I was old enough to be aware of what was going on, it was about five. I knew I was in a weird cult commune thing, right? And by the time I was old enough to start being aware of like doctrine, religion, it was this vanilla, as it was told to me, non-denominational Christian sect. That's what they called themselves. But they were this once. And here it is. Here is the hierarchy. Uh, this is the hierarchy of of their doctrine, essentially. Um, we're going to go a little longer than a half an hour today. Um, okay. This is in really small print on the back of the pamphlet that came from, um, that came from Neil, the director of the, of the thing. Um, is it? No, it's not there either. Okay. Is it here? It is not there. Here we go. The hierarchy. The three great gods of the universe. Jehovah, Lucifer, Satan. So this is number one. Consciously or unconsciously, apathetically, half-heartedly, enthusiastically, fanatically, under countless other names than those by which we know them, all caps, or capitalized, and under innumerable disguises and descriptions, men have followed the three great gods of the universe ever since the creation, each one according to his nature. Number two, for the three great gods represent three basic human patterns of reality. Well, sure, of course they do. Within the framework of each pattern, there are countless variations and permutations, widely varying grades of expression and intensity, yet each one represents a fundamental problem, a, a deep-rooted driving force, a pressure of instincts and desires, terrors, and revulsions. I'm getting at something here, by the way, so, so stay with me here, okay? Okay. All three of them exist, this is number three, all three of them exist to some extent in every one of us, but each of us leans more heavily towards one of them. It's really small print. Whilst the pressures of the other two provide the presence of conflict and uncertainty. Number four, Jehovah, all caps. Jehovah, the wrathful God of vengeance and retribution, demands discipline, courage and ruthlessness, and a single-minded dedication to duty, purity, and self-denial. All of us feel these demands to a degree, some more strongly than others. So that's like the, the God of the Old Testament, I guess, is what they're grabbing there. Lucifer, all caps. This is number five. The light bearer urges us to enjoy life to the full, to value success in human terms, to be gentle and kind and loving, and to live in peace and harmony with one another. Man's apparent inability to value success without descending into greed, jealousy, and an exaggerated sense of his own importance has brought the god Lucifer into disrepute. He has become mistakenly identified with Satan. And number six is Satan, the receiver of transcendent souls and corrupted bodies instills in us two directly opposite qualities. At one end, an urge to rise above all human and physical needs and appetites, to become all soul and no body, all spirit and no mind. And at the other end, a desire to sink beneath all human codes of behavior and to wallow in a morass of violence, lunacy, and excessively physical indulgence. But it is the lower end of Satan's nature that men fear, which is why Satan, by whatever name, is seen as the adversary 
Yeah, he is. And number seven, and between these three great gods and man is an entire hierarchy of gods and beings and superbeings and angels and archangels and demons and archdemons and fiends and archfiends and devils and archdevils and elementals and guides and fallen angels and watchers. Number eight, there is all this and more too in heaven and in hell and on earth. Okay. Um, yeah. So that is basically a metaphysical uh, deist description of everything psychological. There, it doesn't seem like... So they, they're talking about external beings, but what they're trying to actually do is explain away psychology. Explain away actual mental stuff actual things that we do in our lives it's 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 it, it, at its very heart as far as i can tell it, my interpretation of it and and i grant you this is my interpretation from who i am today and from where i am today and from what i've made my of myself today this is divesting oneself fully of responsibility now i know that the sessions that I just read, you know, I read what the sessions would be about. There was about facing up to those things inside of you and moving on. But <laughs> it seems like moving on means finding, finding a way to say that this was all God, Jehovah and Satan and Lucifer. And it's not me. It's not my fault. There's some external being, an archdemon or an archfiend or some sort of deity or being or some site of some sort um, that's that, that's making me do it. Uh, the devil made me do it or Jehovah made me do it. Uh, no, you made you do it. You, with your fear of participating in the world, made you do it. You did it, cultists, because you couldn't deal with your family and their different values from yours. Uh, yeah, you guys did it because you said, mm, man, I got to make something of my life, which everybody says, but then you said, and the rest of these people suck. They don't, I, they don't deserve me in their life. Uh, this whole world is corrupt. So I'm going to divorce myself and separate myself from this world. I'm going to other them and say that those people are doing it wrong and living a wrong, fallen, corrupted, unenlightened life. And we're the ones living the right life. Not on the right path, but living the right life. Now, I understand that there are religions who say this is the right path. Of course, as a Christian, I say Christ is the path. And sure, there can be an argument made that you're just being a religious person for your side. It's true. I am. Um, but I say I, there are external beings, and I'm not trying to be a Christian apologist right now. And it's God and his son, Jesus Christ, and the Holy Ghost. And there are angels, of course, as well. Um, but I, at, at the end of that declaration of their religion, they basically say, and our doctrine covers all y'all's doctrine, all the beings, all the occult, all the spirits, all the, all the everything. This is all part of it. Um, it just seems so treacly. And so, uh, it's, we're trying to be one size fits all we're. We're, we're not trying to offend anybody, but then we, we other ourselves and we separate ourselves and we take our kids and we give them to the cult and the, and the commune and we give all of our money to this cult thing. And it's gross. It's this weird thing where this, this is what cults do. Okay. This is what cults do. What they do is they say it's us or them, but real religion based on being Christian or being Muslim or being uh, Jewish or 
any of the many others is not about making us and them. It's about making all of us us, right? All of us a family of faith. And this cult and every other cult is enemies, adversarial. It's us and them. So while it sounds easy and while it sounds like it sometimes makes sense, it's trash because it comes from a place of fear and it comes a place of from a place of aggression, absolutely an aggression towards others. Uh, and, and, and it absolutely morphed very quickly into violence, violence to the people in it and the kids uh, and ultimately um, unhealthy behaviors that uh, resulted in a large organization schisming in 1974 into one that continued on as the process and one that moved on into something that became the foundation faith of God, a commune that raised its kids uh, communally by people fully unqualified to raise kids because in most cases they didn't love us and they didn't allow us to have somebody we could trust and somebody that we could depend on and somebody that we felt in some place that we could feel safe. There was nowhere safe, which is why books were safe for me. So I hope you get the difference here. There's us and them for these folks. In true communities of faith, true religion, it's us and everybody trying to become us. Because there's one side, there's one team, and that is humanity, right? And creation. And what we're fighting against is ourselves, right? It's fighting, We're fighting against our natural base instincts are harder instincts that make us do harm to ourselves to our spirits and to those and, and to other people that's what we're fighting against not other people making other people the adversary is wrong now they even say they call satan the adversary mm, he's called the adversary in much of doctrine because he's the only one we should have if we're going to have an adversary it should be satan and his temptations to have us do terrible things He's the only adversary that we should have. Everybody else is a potential member of our team or a future member of our team or somebody we want on our team. And you know what? Even if they don't want to be on our team, we're still on their team. And so we'll love them. We'll accept them. We won't turn them away and we will not turn away from them ourselves. So um, the cult turned away from the world and it turned away from its own people eventually. And it became corrupt top to bottom as Marianne the lady of the the, the, the front, the one that became the foundation, sequestered herself in a multi-million dollar mansion on the property there in southern Utah uh, after selling a lie to them, saying that it would be a home and, or, or a house of worship for everybody. But it became a multi-million dollar mansion for her and for Gabriel also to live in for a while, which I think he still lives there. And she died in that building. Yes, she did. So that's all corrupt. But true God, true religion is not corrupt. It is love. True religion is to love one another. True religion is to serve one another. It is never to become exclusive from others. And I know that there are people and subcultures in my own church, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, that do other different people and do separate other people. They look at folks with tattoos and say, oh, you don't look like my people. But guess what, folks? They are your people. You know what? They look at people who maybe reek of cigarette smoke and they're like, oh dear. But guys, okay, look, cigarette smoking is stupid and it's wrong. And we know that, and we know that it's wrong. And people who do it also know that it's wrong. We don't need, they don't need us to judge them. They need us to say, hey, why don't you come over here? If you want help, I'm here to help you quit smoking. And at the same time, I, I'd love to share why I love God. And I'd love to help you learn to love God more too, if you're interested in something like that. 
Um, we, we don't separate ourselves. We don't turn anybody away. Jesus Christ certainly didn't. By golly, he ate in the taxpayer's home or tax collector's home. So uh, that's a lot of religion discussion, but that's that's where this was inevitably going to go. Um, when I was uh, closing in on 19 at the end of 1992 and when I, okay, I should start earlier. When I was about a, age 12 or so, it became clear to me that the God being taught to me, which was some sort of weird amalgamation of all the thing that I just read to you, uh, was trash. There's no way that that was a real being, a God who was interested in my life. It was just a fabrication. Um, I tested it multiple times in, in, in plenty of thought experiments and in prayer to nobody who was listening at that point, right? Because that wasn't real God. Although real God was certainly listening and saying, we'll get there, brother. Get, hang on, or son. Just just, just keep the faith and stay safe. Um, I didn't believe in God. Okay. I told my dad that, you know, at a, about the age of 15 or 16. I'm like, I just don't believe in God. There's no way that what I'm being taught is right. That's not a real God. So I don't believe there is one. I'm open to the idea, but I don't, I don't believe it. So I was an agnostic, right? And then I'm approaching age 19. I've graduated from high school. It's 1992. And, um, I've had some experiences where some young missionaries tried to teach me and my roommate. Uh, he seemed interested. I was never interested, but they were praying for us and they worked hard for us and they served us and they loved us. And that must've made a difference. Um, because one night I did believe in God. I went out the door going to mock God and I mocked him and I came back in the door and I said, God's real to myself. I knew it and I will never deny that. And it's the real God, the one who loved me that whole time, that whole time that I was in that cult with all the other stuff, how I wish I could have known him more when I was a kid that I, how I, I wish I could have known that I could trust in him growing up. It would have helped a lot. Um, but I think I must have found some God in the books that I read. Um, I must have found some safety and some trust in the stories that I read of heroism and of people who would give their all for their loved ones. And in books like The Giving Tree, where that's a type and shadow of Jesus Christ, that tree. It's not a human. That was never supposed to be a human. It's a being beyond humanity who will give all and be happy, even though there's a part the tree's not so happy. And that's because the boy takes off and leaves her. That's when she's not happy. It's because he's gone. That is so Christ-like. And I don't know if Shel Silverstein meant that, but that's what it felt like to me. There was, I longed for that. I wanted that in my own life. I thought, well, what? I want somebody to be willing to give all. Heck, at minimum, I wanted somebody to give something to me. Um, and I still long for that. And I've, I think many of us long for that. And I long for that maybe more than others, to, to be honest. I don't know, because I didn't have that growing up. I wish I'd known God all along, but I'm grateful that I can see him throughout my life, despite the ridiculous uh, origin story I have with this absurd, this crazy kind of fairly controversial uh, background of the process and the bizarre be beliefs here. Every belief is bizarre. Yeah, yeah, caveat, whatever. Um, I wish I'd known him, the real one. Uh, but I look back and I say, it looks like I, he knew me all along and he was keeping me in the places I needed to be that would keep me sane and keep me on the path to, to being able to be healthy and productive. And that path was books and stories. Absolutely books and stories. And um, the thought of true love and keeping myself clean and ready and pure for my true love eventually. Um, 
and true love saved me guys true love and hero book stories of heroism and uh so this doctrine and these weird materials i just got thank you neil uh it's been a revelation and uh uh we are we are more than this mortal life we are responsible for our choices we can never ever throw off our responsibility for our choices and what's going on in our head to some ethereal non-existent being who's controlling our thoughts and we cannot let our emotions run rampant in us we use our more altruistic emotions our stronger righteous desires something we could call the opposite of the natural man to uh to become better people so i've gone on a long time i hope you have not become too bored i have preached at you but i will tell you that we can break free from any past um we can deliberately fall far from the tree uh from which we sprout if we need to okay if we need to fall far from toxicity from abuse from trauma we can fall far from it i will tell you that i i do look back on the cult that i grew up in and the experiences that i've had and i see who i was and i see who I was becoming and I see the people who were influencing me in overall bad ways. And I, I, I can tell you that I, I can look back and I can say, yeah, no, I'm not going to carry that burden. What I'm going to do is I'm going to carry the memory and I'm going to learn from it, but I'm not carrying that burden. And that's what I'm going to end this note on because there is one more episode to come and it is the final episode in just a couple of months. Um, I mean, there may be something else, but I think there's only one more. And I'm, it's going to be about that, about looking back and looking forward and understanding what the past is to our present and our future. Uh, and so I will end on the final note. And that is from Garth, uh, you know, Wayne Campbell and Garth Algar from Wayne, you know, Wayne's World. Garth Algar, live in the now. We should live in the now. Until next episode, live in the now and uh, remember to review the episode. Okay, guys, thanks for tuning in and I'll see you next episode.